you're looking to change things up in your classroom. You'd like to see more student participation and interest, or you really need a better way to tap into each student's individual abilities. Maybe you're happy with everything in your classroom and you're just that teacher who will stop at nothing to provide the very best opportunities for your students so you're always open to hear more good news. Well, let me personally welcome you to the Student-Centered Science Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Carosis. I'm a secondary science teacher with 11 years experience teaching at-risk students in a distance learning cyber model. And yet, I've realized success in my efforts to plan for and execute student-centered learning. See, I believe that a science teacher's job goes beyond transferring specific content knowledge. Rather, I believe our duty is to prepare students for life beyond our walls, to help develop them into informed, active members of society who can confidently make all kinds of decisions. So on this podcast, our discussions will focus on strategies to promote active learning in the classroom and their outcomes, as well as creating and nurturing a culture that enables students to take ownership of their learning by planning next steps and implementing our feedback. Here, we believe that our classrooms are learning laboratories, not just for students, but also for teachers. You'll always get encouragement to keep on experimenting because what you do and how you do it matters. Let's jump into today's topic. Hello, my student-centered science teachers. I hope you are having a great school year so far. Today, we're going to start wrapping up this series on things to consider when you're making the switch or making the decision to implement student-centered learning. So far in the series, we've talked about your role in the classroom, how your planning time and classroom time will be used, changes you might need to make to your curriculum, pacing, scope, sequence, the inclusion of technology in various forms, whether for learning experiences or simple delivery of the lesson. Today, I'm going to talk to you about the fact that students might not buy in immediately. Imagine that. Now, my audience that I've crafted this message for is me, right? So if you're an elementary school teacher, eh, you may not have this problem because elementary school students, they kind of go with the flow a little better. Middle school and high school, we start to, oh experience their their trials, right? The things they're going through personally. And so despite my message today, because I will share some personal experiences about my limiting beliefs regarding what students were going to be able to do with me, the outcome was really amazing. And I've talked on it a lot on the podcast. I saw enhanced relationships with my groups of students as well as individual students. And this was a major unexpected outcome from having switched to a different style of teaching and learning. And remember now I teach a largely at-risk population. So in preparing this message for you today, my perspective, I'm gonna share with you my 
what my perspective was, and that was that they were going to try and skate by without participating in any of the interactive portion of my science lessons, which if you've been listening along, you know that's the heart and soul of what I do and what I hope I'm inspiring you to do. And there were those at first who might have held back. They might have not realized uh, that it was going to persist. But as I persisted, they relented. And so I'm going to talk to you about that experience today. And I'm going to start, I want to start with an analogy. Because actually I love teaching with analogy. Um, Even talking with you folks. And I especially love this analogy because when I first thought of it, the show hadn't rebooted yet. (laughs) But... It has since rebooted. I am talking about the show, The Dog Whisperer, with Caesar Milan. Now, this show is years and years old. I want to say it goes back 10 or 15, maybe, probably not 20, but maybe 20 years ago. It was a reality show, you know, one of the first of its kind, that aired on National Geographic. And it, during the pandemic, was put out there again on Disney Plus, or maybe it had nothing to do with the pandemic, but it was part of Disney, National Geographic's part of Disney. So uh, we had Disney Plus and I'm poking through, I watch very little TV, but when I do, I really like the nonfiction stuff. So it it is um, interesting to me, you know, I'm a science teacher. I'm not much for the fiction and the crazy storytelling, but I do love the Marvel movies. They They are my jam. Uh, as well as I could get pulled into a good vampire love story. <laughs> and Katniss Everdeen is also one of my favorite chicks in the whole world. But most of the time, you'll find me wa- watching nonfiction. And so The Dog Whisperer, I had seen so many years ago, but actually never have a dog. So I'm not even watching these shows because I'm like, want to know how to train my dog. I just find it absolutely fascinating what he does. He's an accomplished dog trainer. And he's able to essentially tame some wild, out-of-control dogs. There's some instances when he encounters dogs who are actually in a state of paralyzed fear, like 24-7. You know, dogs that have been rescued and undergone abuse or just had one incident at the dog park that wasn't really super friendly with other dogs or... Um, I remember seeing an episode of a dog who, and these are extreme situations, naturally, an episode of a dog who was um, deployed with the military and came back here and obviously couldn't, had PTSD. He couldn't tolerate a thunderstorm or a door closing was too much of a loud noise because he had actually encountered IEDs and things across the ocean. But those are the extreme situations, and those are the ones that make you realize his power because he does do such magnificent things in those extreme situations. But he also impacts the everyday lives of normal people with dogs whom they have not necessarily used the correct strategies to produce the behavior they want. And so in the introduction of the old show, The Dog Whisperer, he says, I rehabilitate dogs. I train people. And his whole theory is that the people need some direction. The people are doing it all wrong. (laughs) The dogs just, they're pack animals and they follow the leader and the leaders, they aren't just super strong. Um, Now, I am 
crazy thrilled that Caesar has been asked back to National Geographic. Um, right now on cable, they are running Better Human, Better Dog. So they took that mantra that he had, I rehabilitate dogs, I train people, uh, focusing on this idea that the leader is the problem. And and of course, he never says that. He never sa- He's a very positive energy person. His, thing is, his whole thing is energy. It's very positive. So he would never say the person is the problem. But really, the person is the problem <laughs> if, we're, if we're being realistic and down to earth here. And um, so better human, better dog. And the, the shtick, the perspective that they're pushing is that, of course, we had the pandemic and there was... Um, in addition to a lot of sourdough bread making, apparently everybody went out and adopted dogs from shelters. And now in the opening of this show, he talks about the fact that it's wonderful that the shelters are empty, but people are having crazy problems with dogs because they weren't prepared to have dogs, they don't know anything about dogs, and they aren't dealing with it well. Some people you know, adopted a dog into their life, had no idea how big it would grow, how much it would eat, how hard it would pull when you took it for a walk. And, you know, simple ill preparation. Others, you know, have pets who, uh, one I watched recently, the dog is only a year old and they adopted it at 10 months. So they've had it for two months by the time they go to see Caesar. But in those first 10 months, he had three owners and had a severe case of separation anxiety because of that. <clears throat> so anyway, just some background there on my analogy. Firstly, if you're into that sort of thing, I think it's just an awesome show and I highly recommend you watch it. I like put it on my iPad on my windowsill when I'm washing the dishes at night like, um, because my family doesn't love it as much as I do, but I, I try to get all the episodes. Here's the thing, folks. His strategy seems real simple. And when you watch him, you're going to hear him say, you need to change your energies. Telling the owners, change your energy. You need to be dominant. You need to be calm, cool, collected, strong. And the dog needs to feel that. And of course, this is easier said than done. I mean, if someone told you, change your energy in the classroom, <laughs> we're science teachers. Is it just me or would you need a bulleted list of how to? You know, we are used to following pointed procedures and expecting a specific outcome. And here he's talking about energy, something we can't see or feel. But yet the people he works with do, they accept it, they adjust. And sometimes it takes a lot of practice, but, but, they, but they make it happen. Most of his clients have tried to be dominant and set boundaries, but they did so using words to verbally correct their dogs. And... Sometimes then they supplement with some sort of physical action like tugging on a leash or physically blocking a doorway. And of course, there's actual science that goes with this. You know, Caesar explains that dogs um, are hearing first. Here, I actually forget if it's smelling or hearing first, but one of those senses comes first. And, you know, high pitched baby talk to a dog doesn't convey power dominant energy, it conveys pity and sympathy, and weakness. And so in addition to body language, he talks about the way you use your voice. And I can't imagine where you think I'm going with this <laughs> because I'm not going to suggest to you that you need to use a different voice in the classroom. What I'm telling you here, though, or what I want to get to is the fact that most actions the owners take are the right ones. Caesar says, you're doing this right. We need to adjust your energy. 
We need to adjust your mindset, your your approach and in how you're dealing with this. You need to approach your intent, uh, change your intent. And he explains that dogs won't adopt the calm, submissive state that we need them to be in to effectively train them or keep them safe, as it might be, unless that owner and handler both, now get this, believes they are strong, capable, confident, and follows through with actions that demonstrate their strength, capability, and confidence. And that's my takeaway. I'm not sure. That's not a direct quote. You know, if I were to translate what I've seen and and heard in him and changing energy, I really feel like if we adopt this, this idea in every aspect of our life, perhaps we will see more fruit of our labor. You know, for me at my stage in life, I've got two kids, seven and nine, and I think of what Caesar does with his dogs and I go... That's what I need to do with my kids. You know, um, sometimes it's just boundaries, but it comes with belief and follow through action. So I am not suggesting today that you liken dogs to your students. (laughs) I know that's slightly maybe inappropriate imagery. But it is critical to understand that our success in managing a classroom will be twofold in the same way that Caesar realizes success with the dogs he trains. We have to believe our plans are robust and our students are capable and we need to follow through with the actions that demonstrate our plans are robust and our students are capable. Now, well, Lisa, what does a robust plan look like? Well, I would tell you go back to some podcast episodes or visit my website at www.laboneverylesson.com slash five elements. When you do, you can download a guide to creating a robust interactive science lesson plan for student-centered learning. One that activates prior knowledge, has students active in the classroom, helps them set clear expectations for themselves throughout the lesson, focuses on that scientific method, those scientific method skills of observation and data analysis and includes skill practice. So I would suggest that you start there with creating your robust plan, but then coming out, what we're talking about today is that invisible portion, that mindset shift that you have to make. Prepare the plan, know it will work, even if you don't know it will work. (laughs) And that's so amazing and makes this analogy great because Caesar, when he meets with these um, families, with these people, with these dog owners, you know, they're at their wits end and they've seen his magic and they think he can help them and he sees what they could do. I mean, he literally holds the leash, walks down the street with a dog who is unwalkable and it's, oh my goodness, how can I do that? Um, But He knows he can do it. There is so much power in our beliefs and eliminating our limiting beliefs. So you have the robust plan. You believe in the plan. Even if you don't actually believe in the plan, you tell yourself you believe in the plan (laughs) and you follow through with the actions that demonstrate you believe in your plans. In previous episodes... 
and plenty of blog posts, I've talked about the 60% mindset as the first step in attempting to switch to student-centered learning if you're teaching a traditional classroom. Because if you are teaching a traditional classroom, which means that you are kind of delivering content knowledge, you are the conduit for knowledge and skills to students, Adopting the 60% mindset means that we believe the students are capable. We believe they have so much more knowledge. 60% of what we're going to teach them, they already know. And that's a really, really difficult thing to swallow, especially when you're teaching science. Because science is full of facts and science is full of skills. If they haven't encountered it yet, then how on earth are they going to are they going to know that? I'm reading a book right now that I'll report on eventually to you on the neuroscience of learning. And though I don't have the quote here nearby me, the author in the very beginning in the introduction points out that calling upon prior knowledge is what your brain naturally tries to do. And this happens for students as well. And if they don't have the prior knowledge, it doesn't matter. Students are going to use what they know to tie in and um, connect to what they're being asked to do. And while sometimes this creates misconceptions, it can produce profound learning. And so we have to rely on that 60% mindset is part of my own um, belief system. And I would recommend you adopt it. If at any point you struggle with, is this going to work? How is this going to work? And how am I going to get my students to do what I need them to do? Unfortunately, there is an invisible trust you have to have that it's there and the brain knows how to do what the brain knows how to do. Our best intentions and the best plans, they're simply not enough. Uh, while I have preached on a good plan, and I think a good plan can get anybody through, you might not just be the best teacher with a good plan. And of course, we all have great intentions. But with the core of our being, we need to abandon the laundry list of excuses we might have for why our students don't excel. I plan to, in time, share with you a series in the podcast on limiting beliefs. Limiting beliefs that I had that I had to overcome in order to accomplish what I've accomplished. Which honestly, lately, in in my third year now of doing it, I am so comfortable and so assured that this works, that I've, I've honestly never been more professionally at ease than I am this year. But it took driving through those limiting beliefs with a snowplow, you know, and just running them over. Because the students are going to respond to our energy before they get a chance to respond to our plans. And ultimately, they're not going to respond to one without the other. Once we understand the vital nature of our own mindset, we can begin to demonstrate it through our actions in the classroom. And unfortunately, just like Caesar, I mean, I swear to you, tune into an episode. You will see what I see. Just like Caesar and his dogs, you can't just say, sit, Fido, stay, Fido, come, Fido, down, Fido. It doesn't work that way. The dogs, they hear 
but they don't necessarily, until they are well-trained, they don't understand the words, they hear the way you deliver the words. So in the classroom, going back to our classroom, in demonstrating our um, what our mindset is through our actions, we can't accomplish that only through positive, encouraging words. I know teachers who love students, and I hope you love students. I love students, but, you know, and I guess this is an error in my perception of things. I would say these teachers love students, but, and that is their entire focus, to be positive, to be encouraging, to be supportive. But in Caesars, if I transplant myself as a teacher and I'm Caesar, the dog trainer, my students are the dogs, and I'm being nothing but, oh, it's okay, are you okay? I know you're having a hard time. And all of that, even the sound of your voice that often comes with positive, encouraging, supportive, puts you in a different leadership role. And I work with at-risk students, folks. I understand the need for that position sometimes. I've been trauma-trained. My school is proudly, um, I believe, the only cyber school that has been trauma-trained in the country, in the whole country. And I'm very proud that I work for them. And I'm very um, thankful for my training in trauma. And I feel very, like, that is a great value to me. However to approach an entire class in a position of support means you are below them. And now don't confuse this with servant leadership because I've talked on servant leadership also. And servant leadership is about supporting them, but it is this fine line where you have to remain the leader. And you're in this environment now, we're talking student-centered classrooms. Student-centered classrooms are environments where students take control of their learning. <laughs> so a lot of my messaging can get mixed here. Lisa, you want students to take control. You want me to be their servant, but I'm not supposed to cater to their, their boo-boos. But I have to because that's my job and maybe that student doesn't have another person to do it in their life. I mean, maybe you're out there thinking, what does this even mean? This is just totally you know, backwards. And, and there is such a delicate balance in achieving that state of control and dominance and leadership, but ensuring that you are fostering growth mindset and, and, and lifting the self-esteem of those students. That's what we're really talking about here. And that's what Caesar does with his dogs. He is not abusing the dogs. He does not touch the dogs. By giving them dominant control, he's, he's allowing them to relax in safety and trust. And that's ultimately what we need from our students, safety and trust. So things like allowing students the opportunity to assist in setting the expectations of the classroom, grouping themselves, deciding how they'll spend their active class time, which of course has to be planned ahead of time by you. You know, that's not a free-for-all. Okay, do what you want to do. You have some structured options for them that they choose from. These are re more than reasonable examples of ways we can ensure students feel empowered toward reaching academic and perhaps even behavioral goals they've set for themselves because they feel safe, 
because you have taken the lead and you are there to support them. I'm feeling like I could make a graphic about this and it would have some sort of intertwining feature to it. I don't know if it would be a triangle or a circle, but all the arrows would be pointing to each other. Uh, You can't have one really without the other. And, you know, if we focus on that idea of control for just a minute, students taking control of their learning and choice. And I said that needs to be, you know, incorporated into our plan to begin with. In order for students to take control, they need to have choices. They need to, uh, in order to feel control, they need to feel like they have the ability to follow through on something themselves. And in the traditional classroom, we're often making choices for them. Here's the worksheet. Everybody's getting the worksheet. Do the worksheet. You know, all questions, 1 through 20. There's an unspoken message when we do that, that we don't believe they can make good choices for themselves. And dare I suggest, in doing so, we're teaching them to be followers instead of trailblazers. Let me say that again. When we make all the choices for them, there is an unspoken message. Maybe you call it energy. We're doling it all out. We're pushing it all into their brains, cramming it in there. We must not believe they can make good choices for themselves. And we teach them to be followers instead of trailblazers. Now, on the topic of choice. In my opinion, there's authors who take this a little too far. And I'm just going to go off. I'm going to go off the yellow brick road for just a moment. The famed Danielson framework for teacher evaluations, just as an example indicates that distinguished teaching occurs when students participate in designing assessments for their own work. And students develop rubrics according to teacher-specified learning objectives. Now for me, this takes it a step too far. And perhaps I'm just not completely student-centered enough yet. (laughs) And this is still a line I'm not willing to cross. Because I personally believe there's some aspects of education that serve to prepare students for adulthood and the workforce. You know, it's just a reminder, shout out, I'm talking to high school teachers, middle school, maybe you don't have this so much, but in the high school, you know, we really are pushing them to the next thing, whatever that is. And I don't know about you, But I'm willing to bet that you have yet to hold a job, because I have yet to hold a job, where my boss allows me to kind of decide the parameters of how I'm going to be evaluated in my job, or decide when to come into work each day. I can only rationalize in my mind how this practice of extreme choice, you know, allowing students to design their own assessments and um, develop their own rubrics, how this is going to long-term kind of hurt students rather than help them because they're not going to have that in place when they leave me. Uh, Again, my philosophy is all about bringing learning back down to earth, making it less textbooky, less um, establishment, and more real life. So that's just an aside. But no matter when you decide to make the commitment to a classroom transformation, or if you're just starting out as a new teacher, 
whether you start at the beginning of the school year or you become empowered, inspired, maybe it's your New Year's resolution and you're going to start in January or the start of semester two, whenever that is for you, it might be possible that when you change your energy, when you adopt this mindset, when you believe and you follow through, your students might be a little sidelined. They might have whiplash and they're going, what the heck is going on? <laughs> you might have to generate some buy-in. And I believe that being consistent with your expectations is going to be an important aspect to your success of achieving your goals in this specific instructional initiative. Now, I am, I'm going to talk a little bit just about examples of how you of how I do this at the very beginning of the year which may or may not apply to you now because they are very beginning of the year activities uh, however you can incorporate similar activities that are not so uh, back to school meet and greet ish and achieve the same goal and I'm going to try to point out for you where that's possible when I started this in 2000 19. I was in a position where I believed most of the teachers in my school were teaching in a traditional manner. And in fact, because of the cyber school platform, the, the distance learning model we're on, which many of you might be able to relate to now that we have had the pandemic and so many people were teaching in Google Meets and on Zoom and in some sort of distance learning capacity, you know that or you feel, let me say this, you feel that you are limited in what you're able to deliver in what you're able to ask, in what you're able to do, certainly, especially when you're with them. And I don't think it's that much different in my school. We never received specific training on how to be an online teacher because there is no specific training for being an online teacher. The best practices are still being hashed out, and I suspect post-pandemic that educators are going to be all over that. In fact, this neuroscience book I'm reading right now is actually, has been written, but has been adapted, and the title is actually The Neuroscience of Online Teaching, and I'm reading it to benefit my own practice, but the whole thing really is centered on what we've learned from distance learning in the pandemic. And so whenever we have professional development, it has largely been focused around student needs, empathy, trauma, um, and then very practical aspects of PD, like the systems that we work with and the programs that we adopt. There was one year where we were trained on specifically lesson planning and components of a good lesson. And that was valuable. But no one ever said, you should teach this way. You should be interactive. You should uh, shepherd people through. I think there was one year we had a horrible, horrible head of school and she actually asked us to just share the curriculum slides that were sh shared with us as part of our curriculum uh, package and paraphrase them <laughs> storytelling and that was very bad actually but I don't think our teachers really moved very far from that and even me myself I told you I've been teaching 11 years and probably eight of those years I also came to class prepared with a story of sorts and what I called formative set for formative assessment throughout where I'd ask a question and we have polling features and students would pull their answers. And it was sort of this conversation that wasn't happening in words or chat, but in answers to questions. And, and I would respond based on how they pulled an answer. 
And those were the performance tasks in the lesson. And I, in when I think back, it's just so, so different from what I do now. Not bad, not good, just so very different. And this is how all the teachers, I feel, I don't know, because I don't observe my other teachers in my school, but I think that's how most of them kind of operate. And of course, when you're delivering lessons that way, you can ask scaffolded questions. You could get to critical thinking skills. It does usually require that you have some willing participants who will share their ideas and not just their answers to multiple choice questions. And that, that was hard to come by too. Um, but let's go back to where I was. So that sort of sets the stage for you, the environment I was in. And now in cyber school, there's not a great retention rate. So from year to year, over all these years, and in fact this year, our CEO shared with us that I think the average retention rate is something below 50%. And so that means less than 50% of our students are returning each year for instruction by us. So that turn, it's, it's a turnover, okay? This year, we have 80% retention, which is like phenomenal for the cyber school world. We're doing a good job. Again, I said I'm so proud of the school for which I work. But at the time I did this, it was still pretty low. So you couldn't have expected that all the students in your class were coming from teachers below you, like science teachers that came before me. I teach chemistry, so I couldn't assume they hadn't... Um, a biology teacher from my school. Cyber schools are a great melting pot. They are statewide schools. And so that actually works to my advantage because I get to learn so much about the different programs in different schools when students transfer halfway through the year and the, the kind of things they've done. And um, anyway, <laughs> digress a little bit. I knew at the time that the science department in the high school Many of the teachers were completing entire lab activities with their students. And by with their students, I am not meaning what I have described to you here on the podcast. They did not assign an activity and then peek in on their progress, ask them specific probing questions, and support them toward the next goal. I mean, they demonstrated the virtual activity on the board the entirety of the procedure. Now, in the state of Pennsylvania... We have sciences inquiry standards. And in the sciences inquiry standards, there's a list of six to 12 tasks that students should be able to do related basically to the scientific method. Um, and actually, in the Common Core reading standards, we have the science uh, requirement that is following a complex multi-step procedure independently. But teachers would do it with them. I called it hand-holding. I never liked it. And before 2019, I had stopped doing it. I would say, this is your assignment. I will answer your questions. You know, I'd give them the basic overview. We'd talk about it a little, but I didn't do it for them. And they didn't just take notes while I did it. And a lot of the times when the other teachers are doing it for them and they're, they're talking about it, they're manipulating these simulations such that every relevant lab question could be answered and maybe sometimes was in the discussion among the students and the teacher as they're giving the tour. So in 2019, when I go, I'm going to do student-centered stuff, I'm going to ask them to work every day on their own. I'm going to give them these simulations and I'm going to show them the snapshot and I'm going to show them the buttons they're going to press. They're going to do it. 
I assumed those students would not be prepared. They would not be adept at completing multi-step tasks on their own. I assumed that their expectation for class time would include some request for volunteers, you know, that I would say, hey, who wants to do this? Some cold calling on people who weren't responding, um, some polling type questions. Maybe they would expect me to call on them to complete a group activity. And in our, in our school, I think in general, me personally, in our model, I still have yet to understand how to assign individual accountability to group work unless I have every student submit their, their, their work. Um, and, and that's for another discussion because that's hard to explain how that goes. But you know how teamwork can be um, all or one or none. It kind of goes like that. But So when I decided to do this and I changed my mindset and I was all in and I had, was plowing through my limiting beliefs, on the very first day I had planned and for throughout the entire first week to create and present activities that required my students to write, to speak, to collaborate. Because that's what I had planned they would do throughout the entire year, each and every day in my student-centered classroom. Because they would be doing activities and I'd need them to write to show their progress or their understanding. I'd need them to speak so that we could all learn from each other's um, lessons that we, you know, from experiences. And ultimately that leads to collaboration, which is exactly what happens in the real science setting. So the activities I chose and the consistency with which I applied them, of course, in addition to that 60% mindset, which has me planning for rigor, essentially, because I'm expecting they can call upon some prior knowledge, whether they've had it or not. Those things are going to set a strong and unspoken message. It's going to be that energy, that dominant energy, and potentially reset. I was looking to reset any preconceived notion they had about what science class was going to entail. And I spend the whole week doing this. And I'm going to go on and tell you about, you know, how I initially began this whole process. It's adapted over the years. Um, In the first week... Now, I always do spend the entire first week with the types of activities I'm going to describe to you. And sometimes I'm self-conscious about that, truly, if I'm really honest. The other chemistry teachers on my team are like three and four lessons into atomic structure. By the time I'm not even started, I haven't (laughs) haven't touched a lick of chemistry yet because I'm trying to negotiate terms and build trust, and emphasize science as inquiry, the scientific method, and the expectations of the classroom. So on the very first day, I usually introduce myself with a short presentation that includes, you know, my pictures and text. It's like a sample social profile. My education, my experience, some personal details like my family, my hobbies, my goals, some fun things like my pet peeves, new things I'm trying, new things I want to accomplish, one thing I've failed at. Uh, Then for the remainder of class time, which that only takes like five or ten minutes, hey, I'm Mrs. Carosis and this is me. Uh, For the rest of class time, and I'm talking like a good solid 30, 40 minutes, my students are charged with creating their own short presentation to introduce themselves. 
I provide them with a template and I encourage them to include pictures and specific details about themselves, similar to what I provided. And then over the next few days, as we go through other activities, I will ask for volunteers to share uh, using their presentations as a prompt or a guide to share about themselves and step up and practice that oracy, practice um, being open and being willing and having other students see that as well. Now, and when I first started this, I made everyone do it. And everyone did it. Um, my third year in, I just take the volunteers because my class lists honestly have grown to the point that I can't spend, <laughs> I can't spend multiple days just with introductions. So I probably get a third of my class list to offer up some information about themselves. And we start class that way every day for a week. The activity, of course, might not work for you because my environment is different. Um, you know, when I went to high school, I, the school I attended was so very small. I graduated 50 other students. Maybe we had one new student every year or a transfer or something. But otherwise, we knew each other from elementary school. And even if your school is bigger, your school might be the same way if you're in a, a standard district. But the cyber school I teach, like I said, is sort of a big melting pot. And a lot of students' nerves are high because maybe they have never been in cyber school before. They don't know how they're going to be received. You know, students today... You wouldn't believe it because of the way social media is. But they are nervous about putting their thoughts and ideas out there for all to see, just as much as they would be saying them out loud in a classroom. My students' nerves are usually high because they're inexperienced and their confidence is low. And so this is an approach I take to start that trust-building process and to bridge gaps. I intend for the activity to initiate the formation of a community uh, one in which we can become familiar enough to share and lean on for help because that is super important as well. Then when I started this initiative, the next few days of the first week were marked by the development of a class contract. And I thought that by creating a class contract in the early days of introducing student-centered learning, every student would be made aware of the expectations that, that they had for themselves and that I had for them. And everybody, it's it's an agreement, you know. This is how everybody's going to be successful. And, I, you know, this is where I will hearken back to earlier episodes of the podcast when I taught you about effect size, if you hadn't known about that already. And in the book, Visible Learning, What Works Best to Optimize Student Learning, the authors highlighted the fact that teacher expectations for students have an effect size of 0.4. And if you recall, 0.4 is one year's worth of learning. So it's great. Here, guys, this is what we're doing today. One year worth of learning. We should expect to achieve at least that. But when we can inspire students to have high expectations of themselves, that effect size skyrockets to a whopping 1.44, which is three and a half times one year's worth of learning. So a great student-centered learning experience with positive social-emotional implications would require students to collectively kind of prepare a list of attributes and actions they wanted to observe from themselves and their peers in the classroom. And now as teachers, we can expect that every student would want to be treated with kindness and respect and have those soft skills, you know. 
They may not wish themselves to collaborate or be creative, but we can expect that they'd appreciate those characteristics in others. We all do. At the time, my goal was that they wouldn't just outline their expectations for the class and for the class time we spend together, but that they would also note their expectations of me as their teacher. Because they're not going to ask for a teacher who is boring, dry, talks the entire period, or is critical and condescending or any of those real negative features. You know, you expect they're going to come out with a lot of positive traits. So this activity, I focused on mindfulness. And mindfulness at the time was a big pop culture word. I think it kind of still is, but I have moved away from it a little bit because I did it two years in a row. And while it was good, I'm not sure it had super lasting effects. Um, I have since modified this whole class contract thing to uh, be much shorter and much to the point and definitely more driven by me. Uh, and again, those are decisions you're going to make based on your experience with them. But when I started out, this was as important for me to do, to become comfortable with the change, with the system. And, you know, remember, I'm plowing through my limiting beliefs. Some small part of me is believing my limiting beliefs. And every move I'm making, I'm interpreting as a step to overcome them. So I ask students to do this mindful act, mindfulness activity where it's really very meditative for a few minutes and I want them to actually close their eyes and recall their best class or their best teacher or their best school experience ever. Now for high schoolers, this might have been when they were five or 10 or 12. I mean, who knows? It could go way back. I personally deal with a lot of students who have very bad school experiences. It's why they end up with us. So sometimes it's hard for them to reach that. But I asked students to write down all the positive words and phrases they recalled from this scenario they envisioned. And I would challenge you to do this too. You know, if you've been a teacher for a while, to just sit there in the quiet, close your eyes with a focus on the best class ever that you ever led and what happened in that class period that made it so great. I can do it for my own high school experience and I usually share it with the students. It probably helps that I happen to have a crush on that teacher at the time, but you know, that's a funny thing that we can laugh about too. So when the reflective time is over in this lesson, I tell a story of what I saw in my memory to model for the type of information they should record and I provided them with some context. Um, as the teacher, of course, we're ultimately responsible for the classroom environment. And me personally, when I did this, if you have listened to all of my episodes, you would know because there's, this is sprinkled throughout and it comes off kind of raw because I still feel it. It was that bad. I had just come off a year that was cold <laughs> and quiet in the classroom. It was painful for me every day to work. I cried because while I might have proclaimed to you that I had become a teacher to be friends with students, like to have the exchange you know is teaching and learning and when you don't have an exchange, you're not meeting the goals. I just felt like such a failure. 
And so, and this year in particular, I'm talking about all this classroom environment stuff because it was at the forefront for me. I felt like I needed to crash through this big brick wall that was standing in my way. And so a lot of decisions I made came from that. Anyway, in the activity, we outlined together the type of classroom we had imagined for ourselves. And at the end of the learning experience, I shared student notes. And this is something I do in every lesson. And it's something that has been highly advantageous. Um, also something, a surprise that I didn't kind of expect from the nature of, of what I had set out to do. But that's for another day. Um, being able to review other student ideas builds trust. It allows students to consider some ideas they may not have entertained. It's just like having a conversation, but my students didn't want to have the conversation yet. So, and, and honestly, I have trouble still. So I share their anonymous responses for them. And I've found great success uh, in doing that because I can do it anonymously in my platform. And if you adopt some technology where you are also able to throw up on your Promethean board or your smart whiteboard some student work without names attached, what I have found is it eases the anxiety of sharing ideas. Plus, of course, everyone learns. When you do this, you're not just publicly praising the person's work. Um, sometimes you're choosing work that isn't perfect and is riddled with misconceptions. And you know that the other students in the class are going to have those misconceptions. So you choose that work to share because, wow, this is what everyone's going to think. And it's very wrong. But to do it anonymously allows the student to know and they know that you're coming from a place of good and that you're trying to teach and make a point and it has no bearing. And if you do it anonymously enough, you find that actually you don't even start looking at the student names. Um, I think probably it takes me until February to really get a handle on repeatedly looking at which student is this, simply because class time goes so fast. When you're spending time active and you're supporting the students uh, and answering their questions and things like this, and, and I just don't even look at the student names most of the time. Um, and again, that's hard for you because you're seeing your students and you can attach the face to the work and the comments to the work. Me, I can't so easily um, because it's a name on a paper. But this informal method, it's basically reciprocal teaching and it mimics the scientific method where we communicate results to each other. Professional scientists always review one another's work, both in one-on-one -on -one environments as well as at large conferences. And I present this fact at the very beginning too. We are scientists now, and this is something scientists do. So expect it, and it becomes part of our expectations. Now, if you're interested in seeing how this session went, there is a blog post I have um, on it, and it is called... Setting up for success in the student-centered classroom, generating buy-in and creating consistency. There's some videos in that blog post that will illustrate how this, how these sessions went and uh, what the outcome was. And that may or may not be helpful to you. But ultimately, this type, and, and like I said, you might not choose this activity, but maybe some other one that isn't content-focused. You're a biology teacher. You're not going to choose biology to strengthen uh, your biology content to strengthen 
group work skills or buy-in and yeah, I'm going to practice the scientific method every day. Going to kind of do it with something else. I've also used just, I did this year, I did just a whole syllabus day. And you go, how could you make a whole day out of the syllabus? Well, instead of reading them the syllabus or presenting a presentation about the syllabus and all the different activities we're going to do and how the grade book works and all of that, I give them an activity, basically like a web quest. They go off and do it in small groups or individually. We come back and we share the high points and that's the lesson. And it mimics what they're going to do each and every day. And through that class, I can say, this is typical of what's going to happen every day in chemistry. You're going to have an activity. I'm going to send you to another to another place on the web and you're going to record your results. And then we're going to come back and discuss and make sure you saw what you should have seen. And it keeps them active. Okay. And that's the very first of three very important implications of taking time to generate buy-in and create consistency. It's about taking time to model how you're going to run class every day. It's just establishing your classroom environment before you can nurture it. So number one, it keeps them active. In a student-centered classroom, students are active. They should always be doing and saying more than you. Second, it gives them the opportunity to express their thoughts and feelings about class time because those ideas they have are informative to you. You know that, even if you're teaching content. You need to know what they're thinking and maybe even metacognitively how they're feeling about what they're learning or how they're learning so you can adjust your methods and you can adjust your approach. It's really amazing actually how much we can learn about our students when we let them take the reins in these processes. It not only informs us of their insecurities and maybe even the bad experiences they may have endured in the past, specifically for me, because I have that crowd of students who usually has been burned, truth be told. But it might also reveal unexpected commonalities among them. For me, get this now, I was surprised to learn that students don't like a quiet classroom as much as I do. And instead of everybody stepping out and trying to make it not a quiet, quiet classroom, everybody is paralyzed in fear, <laughs> including the teacher, the teacher used to be too, um, to make it more than just a quiet environment. Finally, exercises like those that I've described here during which students are given the opportunity to be heard, they begin the process, like I said, of building trust and accountability. They begin to know what they are responsible for each and every day. And when we all, students and teachers, can agree on standards, not state standards, not national standards, but just personal standards for behavior and participation, everyone's able to continue with a positive growth mindset and you can nurture that and each other while teaching the content and everything comes up higher. So as I wrap up today, I want you to know that no matter how or when you decide to go student-centered, and I'm not talking a one-off day, we're going to do a student-centered activity today. I mean, you are now going to be a student-centered science teacher and run a student-centered science classroom. When you decide that and you're going to go about generating buy-in and establishing consistency, 
The key to your success will be both believing in the outcome you've imagined. Yes, folks, I'm talking about visualization. As hokey as that sounds, it is real and I've lived it and I tell you it works. But you have to follow through with actions that demonstrate those beliefs to your students. Some some examples, bullet points here now. (laughs) Maybe repetitious from what I shared with you this whole time. But to summarize, some examples would be to build in accountability measures. Maybe like a daily participation metric. Me personally, I score participation every single day. Maybe you want to give the more stubborn students extra attention. I do that. Trust me, they feel the love. When they know you're invested, they're usually a little bit more likely to come around. And finally, remind them daily of your expectations. For the whole first month, I have this slide that represents our class contract. It's called the C's of chemistry. And I don't have it handy with me here, but I can tell you, I tell them, I bring the challenge and the opportunity to collaborate. They have to bring the commitment. They have to bring, uh, I think I called it conscientiousness, you know, thoughtfulness, creativity, and caring, courteous, and a caring, courteous approach to other students. I think I actually got them all. Those are my C's of chemistry. And for the whole first month, I remind them that that's what's necessary for everyone in the classroom to learn. And in time, they'll learn your new strategy is here to stay. In doing all these things, you'll create connections, I promise you, that are going to foster a positive, rewarding classroom environment in which students do in which students learn, and the ultimate goal, of course, in which students grow. Thank you for spending the time with me today, friends. I look forward to talking to you next week. Have a great one.